Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Let me introduce myself first. Uh, for those of you who are not attending the first one last Sunday, uh, my name is Nelida Fukaro and I'm Professor of Middle Eastern History at NYU Abu Dhabi. And I'm going to introduce today's speaker and chair the session. Um, well, today's speaker is Professor Justin Stearns. Uh, it does not really, for many of us, need much introduction. Justin received his PhD in Near Eastern Studies from Princeton University in 2007 and has taught in the Arab Crossroads Study Program at NYU Abu Dhabi since 2010. His, fir his first book was Infectious Ideas, Contagions in Pre-Modern Islamic and Christian Thought in the Western Mediterranean, published in 2011 by John Hopkins University Press. And he's published also article in Islamic Law and Society, Medieval Encounters, Alcantara, and History Compass. His second book uh, on the social status of the natural sciences in early modern Morocco is entitled Revealed Sciences, the Natural Sciences in Islam in 17th century Morocco. This book is forthcoming with Cambridge University Press and is going to come out in 2021. He's currently working on an edition and translation of Ayus's Discourses for the Library of Arabic Literature, the first volume of which appeared in 2020. Today, Professor Stearns is going to give a talk entitled Plague and Contagion in the Pre-Modern Muslim Mediterranean, a talk which is, needless to say, extremely topical and also based on some of the work he did for his first book. Uh, to you, Justin. Thank you so much, Nalita. That was a very kind introduction. I'd like to um, start by thanking a, um, a number of people. First to uh, Nahid uh, Ahmed, who runs the, helps run the, the, the Institute uh, series, and, and to Phil Kennedy um, of the Institute. And I would also like to, to acknowledge right at the get-go that this is a, what I'm about to give to you today is a talk which follows along with several other talks that have been given over the last six months by colleagues of mine, um, people whose work has influenced mine. Um, and for those of you who are looking for uh, different tacts on the same subject or different approaches to the same subject, I highly recommend that you go on and, and check out the, uh, the lectures by uh, Professor Nuket Varlik of uh, University of South Carolina or and the, the talk of uh, uh, Nuket's talk is largely on, on the Ottoman experience and also on the ways in which the historiography of plague and disease has focused around the plague of Marseille of 1722. And it's an excellent overview of the changes in the historiography of the field. Um, my colleague, uh, uh, Professor Elaine Van Dalen of, of um, Columbia University has a, a great talk online on medical uh, approaches from the Muslim, Muslim world to plague and epidemic disease. It's with an eye to the fact that other wonderful material exists out there about subjects such as this that I today would like to, to talk about specifically the religious aspects of the Islamic tradition 
when it comes to the issues of plague and contagion. And so in many ways, I'm flipping the lens here a little bit. Instead of giving you information about plague and contagion, as I might have lured you into this talk to do, I'm actually going to talk more about how we can understand religion through the lens of epidemic disease. And I will start with a anecdote. So in roughly 1512, 1513, the Kurdish scholar Idris al-Bidlisi found himself on the way back to Anatolia from the Hejaz when he heard that the plague had broken out in Cairo, and, and he um, diverted his, his uh, trajectory and did not approach the plague area and returned to Anatolia. And then after finding out that people had been chastising him for running away from the plague, sat down and wrote a treatise of which you have here the first, the first page. And there's a few things that this treatise allows me to do. The first one is to note that here we have a scholar in the Mashriq in the early 16th century arguing that uh, plague is a, an epidemic disease that's contagious and transmissible. He brings his interests as a practicing Sufi into the text the text then reveals a preoccupation with multiple discourses, some of them legal, the permissibility of approaching or fleeing the plague, which is mediated with his engagement with prophetic hadith, some of them spiritual. How do we know? How do things take place in the world? And can we know about them? He has a long section on the barzakh, which is not a, a medical subject, uh, but a highly spiritual one. He has a selective understanding of which prophetic traditions he wishes to engage with. And I'll talk about this more, but here it's noticeable that he does not mention some of the central traditions that scholars in the months and in the years before him, such as his Egyptian um, counterpart, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, used, such that the, as the, the plague being a martyrdom for Muslims who died of it. Instead, he argues the necessity of strengthening the Muslim ummah and of appeals to political authority, in this case, the Ottoman Sultan, to uh, apply measures to that effect. This treatise, which has for a long time suffered under um, relative scholarly neglect, was in fact cited later in the 19th century by an Algerian scholar, Hamdan Hoja, when he penned a, a, a tract in the 1830s for the necessity to impose quarantine in the Mediterranean. And what it does is an opening for me is to show that the engagement with play of discourses or registers that can be brought together under the rubric of both medicine, but then also questions of law, theology, ethics, and mysticism, and including ultimately morality. So when we talk about disease in this case in the Islamic world before the 19th century, we're not talking about a simple series of do's and don'ts, of prescriptions and proscriptions. We're talking about a series of deep discourses that engage with each other in a myriad series of ways, which produced very different responses. And what I'm going to try to do in the next half an hour or so is to give a broad overview of why this is actually a rather difficult subject to talk about with clarity and to give you, however, to surmount that difficulty and give you some valuable insights. So God willing, here goes. Um, it's worth thinking a little bit about the categories that we use. And especially this is valuable today as we all sit here in our various rooms, most likely at home in the time of COVID. We think of disease differently than the actors who did this at the time of the prophet and in the succeeding millennium after him uh, until say the mid to late 19th century, 
disease was largely thought as, of, as an absence of health. This was within a humoral or Galenic framework, depending on how you're looking at it. And it based upon the ways in which the humors inside you were constituted. And when it comes specifically to infectious disease, there was no notion of um, invisible small organisms which might be passed from one person to another and then would cause someone else to become sick. And I'm sure that in some ways we can all be rather sympathetic to this. Uh, our own understanding of COVID has shifted dramatically from um, February of this year until now. I can still remember setting aside my groceries for like two days after I bought them because I was afraid that they would infect me because of, of uh, but sur our understanding of surfaces infecting us has changed dramatically over the past six months. And if, if the, our empirical understanding of these things today, um, when we do have the ability to empirically see COVID, so to speak, um, has shifted so dramatically so quickly, we can only imagine what that was like for people before they had uh, this kind of 19th century laboratory etiological understanding of where disease comes from. So one of our, 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 our challenges then in looking at the past is going to be this question of understanding how disease was dealt with by people who had a very different empirical understanding of what, of how the body works and how disease works. And we should be wary then specifically of bringing our own judgments to the table in this, in this, uh, this way. That is one presupposition that I need you to, to take on board. The second one goes along with a rather old uh, understanding of the relationship between religion and science. This story, which became prominent in the 19th century, but it's had long after effects uh, till today, has it that there is some tension when it comes to authority between religion and science, and that um, therefore one could not do something religiously and scientifically equally at the same time, or that these are somehow contrast categories. And that when we look at the past, that we will be seeing tensions between, say, medical and religious understandings of disease. And I'm going to want to try to mess with that a little bit today as well. Um, I've talked a little bit about the limits of empiricism today. And this is, it's important here when we talk about plague to remind you that uh, of a couple of things when it comes to, uh, to, to plague. First of all, can, plague is, in the time period that we're looking at, largely not contagious. And when I say that, I mean it was not transmitted from person to person. In some cases, the cases of pneumonic plague, it was. It's when they got into your lungs and you coughed it up and out of you. But in most cases, the cases of bubonic plague, um, which is what most of the cases are, we think, in the first and in, in, in the Justinianic plague and then later in the, the, the second major plague pandemic, the Black Death, that we call the, the Black, Dick, Black Death, we think of um, it's actually transmitted by fleas off of other animals, usually rats, in our, or fleas from human to human. And in that sense, if you don't have an understanding of how what plague is and how it's then it's going to be very difficult to empirically verify how it gets transmitted. Two people next to each other, if one of them has the plague, won't necessarily give the person next to them plague unless the vector of the flea is, is present. This too needs to be brought into account when we read pre-modern accounts of the plague. A further major point that I'm going to put to you before we dive into the nitty gritty of the sort of the Islamic texts, religious texts, is that religion cannot be understood solely as a textual phenomenon. And this is uh, something that I'm sure the vast majority of you are well aware of, but it bears reiterating that religious practice over time is practiced by a community of scholars and believers who interpret those texts in different ways. And that process of interpretation is central to how you were able to come to different conclusions regarding empirical evidence 
and interpreting God's revelation. And this, this point is going to help us a great deal with understanding how Muslim scholars were able to come to very different understandings about the contagiousness of plague and the proper attitude of how one should respond to it. And we need to be wary in that case of trying to seize upon particular figures from the pre-modern period and holding them up as paradigms simply because they mirror our contemporary understandings of what is true. This is going to be hard. There has been a tendency when looking at pre-modern Muslim responses to epidemic disease of trying to seize upon those figures who have opinions that are as close as possible to our modern day ones. And this would be a mistake because what it does is it impoverishes our awareness of the discourse uh, that they were working with, impoverishes our awareness of how they understood the world and of their own and creativity and rationality that they brought to the, uh, the process. And I say this both as a warning within Western historiography of seizing upon figures that fulfill their own stereotypes of what or their own perhaps um, preconceptions of what the Muslim world has been like, uh, intellectually speaking, but also to people within the broader Muslim community to take the complexity of their antecedents, worldviews seriously, and not simply to seize upon those figures who match most closely their own contemporary desires for what the Islamic tradition would say. The Islamic tradition has been extraordinarily diverse and vibrant on this subject as it has on many, many others. And then that brings me to my final point here is that I see that the most productive attitude for us when it comes to this subject matter is one of what we can call a kind of historical humanism of trying to understand the figures in their own light as best as possible in through their own categories as much as possible and to the right here on the slide you have two works one uh, of course is my own book for which i apologize but it was written very much with a great debt to the figure on the left michael doles whose early monograph the black death in the middle east is probably the single most influential book is kind of kickstarting a broader field and because it came first it is a, um, a necessary foundation for the rest of us working on the subject of, of plague and epidemic disease in Islamic thought. It also means that we inevitably find have our differences. And I have a couple of clear differences with Michael Doles on, on a number of subjects that uh, I will probably mention in, as, we, as we go on. So the Muslim community stands out uh, from other monotheistic communities when it comes to epidemic disease in a few ways. But it bears mentioning that Islam arises as a part of late antiquity. And what that means in short is that the seventh century, when the early Muslim community forms in, in the Hejaz and then moves quickly out into the Levant and throughout the area we now know as the, as the, as perhaps as the Middle East, it meant that there were other traditions before it, such as Christianity, Judaism, but also Zoroastrianism, other religious traditions, and specifically Hellenism in terms of the entire Greek medical and philosophical corpus that it shared with other communities, right? And in that, so it, it, it acquired very quickly a understanding of humoral medicine. That is to say that people are composed of, of disparate uh, humors and that, um, that epidemic disease can only really then be explained through a factor that would affect people of different humoral um, compositions, and this means that it's usually understood to be a corruption of the air, and that the air, by being corrupted, is able to afflict, afflict 
many different people living close together, but who have are either could be differently seen as melancholic or phlegmatic, uh, choleric, having different uh, um, temperaments. It also meant that they shared with Judaism and, and Christianity a uh, a preoccupation with how to deal with disease theologically. Like, what does God want to do with disease? And this means that, in on the one hand, you have to you have to balance the fact that that everything is, is um, and the God is responsible. He's the prime prime mover. He's the first cause. So you have to everything is created by God. So is disease then uh, what does it represent? Does it represent a moment to show your, your reliance upon God specifically? Does it represent one of many occasions where you show your ability to move within a world that's created according to the wisdom of God? Is it a moment in which you can turn and reflect upon your relationship with the divine? Is it a moment when you can reflect upon the transience of this world and the need to, to, to focus on what is truly important, which is the life hereafter? It is, of course, all of those things. So it is, a, it is a moment then when the a, a person's um, life and the significance of his or her life is brought into greater perspective. And in that, the early Muslim community and the later Muslim communities following it shared a great deal with their monotheistic and Abrahamic um, fellow communities. Socially, for this world, not for the next world, epidemic disease posed a problem. And here, too, there were similarities. Does one run away? That would often seem to be the base reaction that one would have, but one also had to temper that with a sense of responsibility towards one's community, towards the sick. What singled out the Muslim community, early Muslim community of, of the, the 7th century from the early Christian and the early Jewish communities is that during the period of formation, that is to say, during the period when we can call the central authoritative discourses in, of the Muslim tradition, so just for as a shorthand, um, fiqh or jurisprudence, kalam or theology, um, or, and then tasawwuf or, or Sufism, were coming about. So from roughly the 8th to the 10th century, uh, or the 7th to the 10th century, during that same time period, the Muslim community in the 7th and 8th centuries was experiencing the plague, was experiencing pandemic disease right early on. And in that sense, we have a lot of material that relates to how early figures in the Muslim community responded. And this material was complex. On the one hand, the prophet denied contagion. He famously said, la'adwa. Uh, giving a list of pre-Islamic beliefs, the belief in contagion, the belief in evil omens, the belief um, in a whole series of other things, which he said was, were not true, would not find a place in Islam. And um, we'll come back to that saying of his. He also, however, was very clear about the need to take uh, to keep one's distance from lepers. In fact, leprosy comes across as the contagious disease par excellence in the hadith and materials. So he said, you know, to flee from a leper as you would from a lion. And he, and because the early Muslim community had a lot of people who were familiar with, with animals um, getting sick and transmitting diseases, the subject came up quite a bit. And another of the prophetic traditions uh, is that don't you should not water a mangy camel with a healthy camel. 
with the implication that they could disease could be transmitted. And there's even a, a rather famous anic, uh, hadith in which um, one of the Bedouin comes to the prophet, presumably having heard him say, no, there is no contagion, and said, but oh prophet, what about you know when one of my animals that is sick with mange enters into a group of other camels and they all become mangy? And the prophet responds by saying, who infected the first one? Raising a subject that will go throughout a, a lot of this literature about causality, who's responsible for disease? So in this way, the early Muslim community stands apart is with a body of material that it has uh, of scriptural material. So while the Quran itself speaks in very broad general terms, the Hadith and regarding the life of the Prophet and of his, his companions, um, and there are several very famous moments in his companions, the, the epidemic disease was present. And as the early Muslim community expanded into Syria, this is following the, the Prophet's death, um, it encountered plague itself. And at a place called Amwas or Amaeus uh, near Jerusalem, a, a huge number, according to traditions, uh, this is in the late 630s, uh, a huge number of Muslim soldiers died. Uh, and most notably, a companion of the Prophet Muhammad bin Jebel, who took the, and, and he, who spoke publicly about this and saw dying of the plague as martyrdom in hand with the jihad, which they were currently carrying out at that time against the Byzantine Christians. Another early example of, of, of this material was the, the second Caliph Omar. This is um, a little bit early. It was approaching Sa'ar in southern Syria and was told that the plague had broken out and consulted with other prophetic companions about what the right thing to do was and was told ultimately by Amr ibn al-As, another prophetic companion, that he had heard the prophet said that if you hear a plague break out, do not enter a region and do not leave it. And with that, I've given you, I think, enough prophetic traditions for the moment. Let's see what happens to them. So hold the prophetic traditions on the one hand. While at the same time that Muslim communities are beginning to gather prophetic traditions into books and authoritative collections, such as the of Bukhari and Muslim in the ninth century, they are also in the process of absorbing the um, previous medical traditions, not only of the Greeks, but also uh, from, from India. Um, and we see this in, early, in the early writings. So here you have a, a brief list of uh, physicians in the Muslim world. You can see here on the slide, he considered contagion to be a localized miasma, which is of corrupt air, which, would, which explains um, contagious and infectious diseases. But he broadened the concept even further to, to include all sorts of, of, of no things that today we would think be rather metaphorical contagion, such as that uh, if you were going to um, this is one of his more, I guess, provocative examples. If you were going to read a book which had uh, sexually exciting things in it, it, the desire would infect you, right? We think of, would think, probably think of this type of thing as a metaphorical comparison, but for him, it's all part of the same, the same process. By the time we get into the 10th century with Muhammad al-Razi and then with Ibn Sina, of whom you have a nice copy over here on the right of his Qanun, we have a fully integrated notion of, of there being a series of contagious diseases, um, that stands, it becomes the basis for a shared medical tradition within the entire Mediterranean between Christians, Jews, and, and Muslims. A subset of a medical tradition at the time um, develops most fully by the time of the, the 14th century, in the time of the Black Death, is prophetic medicine, which is a kind of a blending of hadith with Galenic humoral medicine. It should be seen here, it is not an opposition to a humoral framework as it has been characterized in past, so much as it is showing the ways in which 
traditions related to the prophets and his companions can be integrated with a broader understanding of, of, of Kyonic medicine. And the, the excellent work of um, a scholar by the name of Amerli Perho has shown that, that quite well. So a brief, a brief moment and a shout out here on the right to Josef van Es's uh, amazing Der Feltre des Galeaten, which takes a look at the, that early plague of Amwes and its theological ramifications in Islamic intellectual history. I've already talked a little bit about the traditions of Omar Atsar and uh, Muad bin Jabal at Amwes in terms of the plague and contagion being something experienced by the prophetic companions. But I should point out that the possibility of understanding the prophetic tradition or the hadith as intention or in conflict with each other and the need of explanation arose quite early. So during the ninth century, at a time period when the manuals, what, the, the, what we call look at today as the authoritative uh, collections of prophetic tradition were being established, uh, Bukhari, Muslim, Nasa'i, um, Timidi, and so forth. Um, Ibn Qutayba, at that same time, a prominent Sunni scholar of this time, wrote a book, Ta'awil Mukhtalif al-Hadith, in which he then lays out the different sayings of the Prophet regarding um, plague and contagion and explains that they're not, in fact, conflicting at all. That when the prophet said there is no contagion, he was referring not to the fact that disease is not transmitted, but to the fact that people before Islam had thought that something besides God caused the disease. And um, when the prophet had related, for example, that he himself would eat with lepers, but that other people shouldn't eat with lepers, so they should run away from them if they were lions, that he was talking about the fact that there were some of the spiritual elect who had the poise and the reliance upon God to be able to do things which would put them into potential danger, but because of their faith in God, they would be preserved from harm. But since the prophet did not assume that everyone would have that kind of self-reliance, he said other things to them. So what Ibn Qutayba begins bringing these different accounts together and showing how they all fit, they can be reconciled by introducing devices such as their being directed to different addressees and so forth. Subsequently, centuries, the commentaries in Bukhari and Muslim uh, take up the same task and are able to reconcile these traditions in, in different ways. Now, in the commentaries, these commentaries of Bukhari and Muslim, um, they also brought integrated medical and theological themes. So that we already see here that the elaboration of an Islamic tradition is never siloed between categories, but that medical Discourses about disease and contagion influence uh, people's understanding of a prophetic tradition, and that in genres like prophetic tradition, like prophetic medicine, the use of prophetic traditions enables people to expand upon medical traditions. Right. So this is a not in in this sense a science and religion binary, but rather one of of mutual influence. We have. And there has been a tendency among some historians of Islamic thought to want to isolate certain elements that they can then identify with, say, Greek natural philosophy, as opposed to other what they would call religious or orthodox elements. And this, I think, has actually been a mistake, which has impoverished our understanding of the richness of the ways in which these discourses um, uh, enriched each other, while at the same time, of course, creating multiple viewpoints, not all of which were immediately compatible with each other. 
When it comes to causality, there is, this is a complicated subject. So why, if God, everything depends upon God and God can do anything he wants, why do we take, you know, why do we take precautions against disease? The doctrine of occasionalism comes, comes up here. This is, this is a little technical, but this is a theological doctrine which becomes prominent in the Ashari school and widespread then amongst um, Shafi and Maliki Sunni Muslims, uh, which is the, the group of Muslims largely in what we would think of today as Egypt, uh, North Africa, um, but also into, in parts of the Arabian Peninsula. And obviously the Maliki school uh, has a pride of place in the, in the UAE. So it's, it's, it's born out there too amongst that scholarship. The doctrine of occasionalism says that formally speaking, the, the world is created every instant anew and there's no necessary connection between individual acts. And this for occasionalists is exactly what the prophet was referring to with that prophetic tradition when the, when the prophet said, who do you think infected the first, right? God created the first infection and for an occasionalist, every other infection as well. And for people like Ghazali um, here, if you look at the quote on the right, you'll see that he is arguing that if you trust in God, does that mean that you don't protect yourself? Does that mean you don't lock the door at night? Does that mean you don't hobble your, your camel? Of course not. You take these measures while at the same time acknowledging that they and themselves are not sufficient to protect you because ultimately the only protection that one can find is through reliance upon God. And this kind of gets away, gets, shows the falseness of the binary that uh, working within the wisdom of the God's creation and the world in any way um, makes you blind to the empirical realities you're looking at. You just interpret them differently. So Ghazali solves this, this, this problem. He's able to show us that God's wisdom is expressed in the world. He's not necessarily the first or the last, but I just give you his, his example because the book, the revival of the religious sciences was so influential in the 12th century that it went on to have uh, influenced throughout the Muslim world um, until today. And that it gives a, a way of showing how one can rely upon God's creation while at the same time saying that that does not detract from my ability to go out and to use, um, to use medicines or to wear a mask and stay six feet apart, for example, in order to preserve oneself from, from trans, the transmissibility of disease. Following the Black Death in the 14th century, we see a new genre of literature move in the Muslim, emerge in the Muslim world, and this is the Plague Treatise. The Black Death was so um, immense in its, the, its effects upon all Mediterranean societies, and now far more than just the Mediterranean, spread into to, to West Africa and to East Africa. Uh, much, a lot of good historical work is being done on this right now. Um, here's a, for those of you who, who would like to, to read further, you should definitely take a look at the work of Monica Green, who's been doing amazing work on um, globalizing our understandings of the effects of the Black Death. Um, and also, uh, I think she has some, some forthcoming work with Nahen Fancy that's going to be very interesting about understanding um, when exactly the, the, the Black, Death, Black Death arrived in the Muslim world. For my purpose, what I'd like to hear is to point out the nature of these, these treatises that emerged um, was highly varied. On the one hand, we have works like the one you find here on the right, uh, written by the enormously influential Egyptian scholar Ibn Hajar Askelani in the 15th century. And Ibn Hajar lost three of his daughters uh, to plague in Cairo and subsequently uh, wrote this very long, probably the long, single longest plague treatise I'm aware of, 
in which he actually praises um, the plague, drawing on a, a certain series of prophetic traditions, because saying that dying of the plague is a martyrdom. And he also, which we remember goes back to, in part, to Mu'at bin Jebit early on in the 7th century, who, who you know, after the... Um, the initial jihad into Syria said that people who died of the plague while performing jihad would be dying as martyrs. And Ibn Hajjah spends a long time talking about one's intentionality and reliance upon God. But he does something else that's quite interesting. He, he gives a very close observation of how he saw plague in Cairo. And he denies contagion. He ascribes, uh, he says it's, you know, according to Ibn Sina, there, is con there are contagious diseases and leprosy is one of them, but it's not the plague because I don't see it actually being transmitted between people. And one could just sort of write this off, but I think that would be a mistake. I think it would be better to understand Ibn Hajar is actually reading the evidence that he saw quite, quite carefully. And as he, as he says, you know, one person in a, one, some houses gets it, but nobody else does. While entire other houses get it and everyone dies, there's no logic to this in terms of contagion. It's transmitted from, meaning transmitted from one person to another. So he ascribes uh, the, the active agent to be jinn, right? And the jinn are causing, unseen spirits are causing, um, causing the plague. And he has a, it's, a, it's a very influential treatise. In fact, Michael Doles, when he wrote his book, The Black Death in the Middle East, takes it as kind of a template for the majority response. And, it, and, and then Ibn Hajar is built on other treatises by people in the Mashriq uh, who similarly denied the contagious nation, nature of, of the disease. And for a long time, in a lot of the scholarship, uh, there's an opposition that was set up saying that Muslims denied the contagious nature of the, belief, of the disease. They, they were fatalistic. Whereas in Christian Europe, we have a focus on contagion and then the quarantine and so forth. And when you look at the available evidence, that simply doesn't hold up. That is, so at the same time that we have Ibn Hajar writing, we have people like Ibn Khatima and Al-Mariya over in Al-Andalus, or he's actually writing a century a bit earlier, right after the Black Death. And, and, and he says, you know, that the, this disease is transmissible. You know, don't go to the, the old the clothes market. Don't buy old clothes from people who died of it because you'll get it. So he doesn't understand how. And he still understands plague as being transmitted by miasma, but he also understands it as transmissible between people. And he doesn't see that being, and, and, and he doesn't cite the traditions that, uh, that Ibn Hajar cites. And keep your eye on Ibn Khatima because he's going to come back in a little bit. The fact that these early plague treatises are cited by later scholars in the early modern period is significant for showing how the tradition is very self-aware and is citational of earlier material. We have Abid Lissi, whom you met at the beginning of this lecture, who believes very much in the contagious nature of, of the plague um, and who has no problems on his part of saying that, yes, you know, the plague may be caused by jinn, but they're working through miasma, like, or they're working through, who has no problem taking the spiritual side of things and at the same time reconciling that also with, um, with a, a Galenic humoral framework. And I want to put the name of Ashaqani in here to show you that this treatise finds its way down into Yemen and the Arabian Peninsula um, in the 19th century, where Ashaqani writes uh, a plague treatise, which is largely based on quotations from Ibn Hajar's and is largely hadith-focused. Whereas Ibn Khatima brings in a lot of medical knowledge into his plague treatise, and Al-Bidlisi engages explicitly with a great deal of Sufism in his, Ashaqani keeps it very much on the straight and narrow as a discussion of hadith. So what's 
important for us to understand is the genre is um, multifaceted and diverse. And depending on what the author wants to do with it, they're able to blend different discourses to different effect. And as one example, I'll give this. Uh, this is an example that I've been working a lot on, the Moroccan scholar Al-Yusi, as Nalita mentioned at the beginning. And recently I came across a early, a 20th century, actually, manuscript of a doc, of a of a earlier manuscript written in the 17th century. And Al-Miriti, the author of this treatise in Morocco, quotes Ibn Khatima, so quotes a 14th century Andalusi author about how plague is contagious, and then follows that up by quoting a short poem. Um, from his uh, own teacher, Alusi, on this issue. And you can see that even in the poem itself, there's here a clear recommendation to flee the plague, to run away, and that the tradition, the notion that there is this tradition that one should not flee, right? Do not enter and do not leave an area where the plague breaks out, should not be taken as a firm denial of a Muslim's ability to leave, but as a recommendation that one can take or leave as one pleases. So there's an ability here to interpret what some would take as a direct order of the prophets, that is to say, do not leave uh, a plague-struck area, and here inability to understand that as a recommendation from which one can take as one wills, that one, the, primarily the importance is to get away with it, to get away from it, I'm sorry. You might be asking at this point, well, that's very nice that we have all of this theoretical writing about plague, but what do we know of what people actually did? This is actually much more difficult. We have far more normative accounts of what was done um, regarding the plague, at least before the 16th century, than we do following it. We know that in general, many Muslims behave towards the plague as they did towards other natural disasters. That And this is similar to what happened to what also what Christians would do. There could be actually, in some cases, people would come together for communal prayer. There could be processions. Um, in other cases, uh, there could be a strong focus on the need to take care of, of each other, a, a responsibility to one's fellow believer. Um, some cases, people would come together outside of the city to pray as one would in a time of, of drought um, or to fast. Um, one of the more interesting debates about what actually should happen about this is something I looked at carefully in Granada, in Al-Andalus, between uh, Ibn al-Khatib, who was a contemporary of, of <coughs> Ibn Khatima, and his own teacher, a scholar by the name of Ibn Lub. And Ibn Lub said, look, if the plague breaks out, your first responsibility is to each other. He says, first of all, it's not contagious. But, but second of all, which one, one gets the sense reading him that Almost more importantly, we have to take care of each other as Muslims, and so you need to supply um, solace. You don't abandon people when they're dying. You, take, you make sure that they're comfortable, and you want to, to be with them when they're suffering in a time of sickness. And later um, scholars, uh, I give here the example of Ibn Ajdiba, who's an early, late 18th, early 19th century Moroccan scholar, chiefly known for his Sufism and his, his Quran commentary, who also wrote on the plague, said, look, it's important that we demonstrate our faith in God by going and tending to the sick in a time of plague. So we do have these examples of people who are saying like, we need to go and do something that we understand is potentially uh, is dangerous, but it's the right thing to do. And it's the important thing to do in order to uphold our responsibility to our faith and to our fellow Muslim. 
Then you have Muslims like Al-Bidlisi and people like that who seem to advise people to run away. And we do have evidence in the chronicles of people doing precisely that. And, and later, um, also in some, in some um, travel literature of Europeans to, to the Middle East, we also have examples of people of doing that. The late 19th century Moroccan historian Al-Nasri, looking back to the early 17th century, was very unhappy with the Moroccan ruler, Ahmed al-Mansur, for telling his son to flee the plague and to run away. Um, because he thought that that was inappropriate. Ahmed al-Mansur himself died of the plague. Um, Al-Meriti, Al-Yusi's uh, teacher from the previous slide, also died of the plague. Uh, this was something which was happening a great deal to people um, throughout this period, and it was not, not a, a theoretical um, matter. A lot of the recent work that I'm just going to, for purposes of time, indicate to you has, in the last, I'd say, 15 to 20 years, has, has broadened our understanding of how the responses to the plague in the Muslim world, specifically during the Ottoman period, but also earlier, um, were characterized by, by contingent institutional uh, situations. So Stuart Borsch's book, which you have here on the right, The Black Death in, in Egypt and England, shows beautifully how you could have an epidemic disease in two societies of roughly the same population with dramatically different effects upon the long term rebuilding of the economy, which has to do with the involved way in which the uh, very intricate irrigation system of the Nile, which was the basis and the heart of uh, Egypt's economy, was decimated by the plague um, in a way that affected it, while this affected the English economy quite differently. And I don't have time to go explaining why exactly. I very much recommend that book, though, for those of you who are interested on an institutional side. Most recently, um, or more recently, Nuket Varlik's um, excellent plague and empire in the early modern Mediterranean world has, has justifiably been getting a lot of praise. And with read that book, you can see the various ways in which Ottomans also, as they were building a stronger state in the 16th and 17th century, um, were able to use their response to the plague to do so. So here we find that the development of more public health mechanisms uh, increases along with the centralization of the state. Now, we know what we don't have for the Muslim world anything like the amazing uh, work of Ruth McKay's Life in a Time of Pestilence, which was just came out earlier uh, or last year, uh, which has, uh, this was a plague in Castile and in, in southern Spain, uh, or in Spain, um, in the, the late 16th, early 17th century, in which half a million people died. Um, and she is able to tell that story through the administrative archival records of local communities and their attempts to employ public health mechanisms, but also deal with the economic needs of the farmers and so forth, with a level of detail that I have not yet seen done for the Muslim world. That's something we can aspire to. Um, and there, in that context, those local communities in Spain, because um, on, a, on a level of the entire kingdom, there were not that many policies that were, were, were implemented, uh, it does use the quarantine as, as a, um, a tool, a tool which doesn't end up being all that effective. But I did want to raise quor the quarantine as an issue because it brings us to some of our next, our next questions. When we talk today about uh, some of the ways in which we look at these past discourses or regarding religious discourses regarding how to respond to plague and contagion in the Muslim world, Muslims today have often brought out there's been a debate about to what, how to deal with this disparate and rich tradition in terms of what is most salient and um, opportune to the moment today. And the question of the quarantine has come up. I mean, in, in, in matter of fact, the quarantine, uh, we should 
if we understand this term in its, uh, the specific way in which historians of medicine usually use it refers to keeping a group of sick people, I'm sorry, a group of, not the sick people, a group of healthy people separate from the rest of the community until you can tell whether they are sick or not, right? This is something uh, that was experienced by the Ottoman traveler Evliya Chelebi as he traveled in Europe in the 17th century. And it's not something that we know to have been implemented in the Muslim world until at least the 18th uh, century in, in the Ottoman, in the Ottoman um, Empire. That is, so that's one, one issue that I want to, to, to remark upon as we move closer to the modern period. The other issue, though, is that some scholars have argued that because the Muslims were using occasionalism as a theological framework for understanding how God, God causes things to happen, that therefore there was no ability to, to actually foretell a regularity of natural occurrences, so you couldn't really believe in, well, almost anything. And that's a pretty weak argument in terms of natural processes, because along with uh, the argument that God creates everything in each and every moment, Ashari theologians also had the notion of God's habit, of God creating things in a habitual fashion that one can rely upon, which is a, in fact, it's not natural law in the sense that objects have their own ability to cause things, but it looks like natural law and can be re relied upon to the same extent. Right? These are different. It's important here to distinguish between these pre-modern religious discourses in the Muslim world and contemporary um, sort of biomedical understandings of disease regulation that we have in the 20th century. And the reason I have the 1001 Inventions slide up here is to say that there is this, this it's, a, it's a kind of a traveling exhibition that has come to the UAE a couple of times, but has also gone through the United States and Europe, which sort of presents the achievements, the, science, the, the, the achievements uh, in the natural sciences of Muslim scholars in the middle, what, what Europeans would call the Middle Ages, but in the formative period of Islamic thought as the origin of all contemporary scientific understandings. I'm being a little hyperbolic, but not too. If you watch the video online with Ben Kingsley, you'll see what I mean. And that is also, I think, a danger. We, on the one hand, we, we can acknowledge the immense creative power of Muslim scholars, be they theologians, jurists, or doctors in the pre-modern period and the ways in which they responded to epidemic disease. At the same time, we cannot simply narrow their world to be a precursor to the modern. That is not only bad history, but it, it disrespects them as historical subjects and, and is our attempt to recover their, their understandings of what they were experiencing. I'm, here's a, I'm more or less moving as I move towards my conclusion and giving a shout out to sort of works that people should read on the 19th century. And as we find, as colonialism begins to move into the Middle East and European states became able to project their power into North Africa and into the Levant, um, they use the regulation of disease as a way to impact and to have influence over trade. And so the first uses of the quarantine and the arguments against the quarantine in the Mediterranean and elsewhere um, occur in that imperial context. They're not, that is to say, the public health does not happen in a vacuum. 
And for studies of this, first of all, as, as a humanities fellow this year at NYUAD, Chris Lowe, whose book just came out, is on the right here, I can highly recommend to you. It's not about plague, it's about cholera, and only that in part, but nonetheless, he's looking at telling the history of cholera, its effect on the pilgrimage and the ways in which both the British Empire and the Ottomans use quarantine is, is, is definitely some of the more recent in uh, scholarship that you should make yourself familiar with. But I also wanted to give a shout out here to Salvatore Speciale, Il Contagio del Contagio, which is Italian scholarship, unfortunately does not have as much of a resonance in English language scholarship as it should. And this is uh, really an amazing book, which focuses largely, but not only on Tunisia um, and on the late sort of in the 18th, 19th century there. And as the, quarant the quarantine then becomes more adopted in the Ottoman Empire um, and, and then in the 19th century, also in Egypt. And as it does so, my story largely ends, not because Muslim responses to epidemic disease end, hardly. And if you take a look at uh, Christopher Rose's work on Spanish flu, for example, is another one. There's a whole crop of, of, of scholars who are working on, on epidemic disease more in, in, uh, in the contemporary period, but I'm also looking back to Nancy Gallagher's work. Um, we're, we're moving into a series of different paradigms where the ways in which the medical and spiritual and religious discourses that I've focused on trying to give you an overview of today no longer be had the social hegemony that they had had in previous centuries. When it's, we come down to asking ourselves today what this means for Muslim responses uh, to COVID, there's a great project that's being done by um, Adnan Zulfikar, uh, who's at Rutgers, on compiling all of the fatwas. And this, this is a very early map back from May 2020. They've now, uh, I think, compiled over 100 different legal opinions from Muslim communities around the world on how to respond to epidemic disease, uh, specifically to COVID, with a whole series of questions, um, almost all of which have their uh, have antecedents in the, in the, in the Muslim um, religious tradition in the pre-modern period. Questions such as, is COVID a... Um, is it a punishment? Is it a punishment for the unbelievers? Is it a punishment for the believers? This is a question that came up with plague as well. But there are all, what is striking though, when one reads through these fatwas, and this is also true of the response of Al-Azhar, but also of uh, the, the scholar Bin Beya, also of, of, of scholars from the UAE, is their general um, consensus on the contagious nature of the disease and the way in which they interact with the pre-modern religious tradition. So perhaps unsurprisingly, but nonetheless worth noting, those elements of the religious tradition that are, uh, are cited that bear out the contagious nature of the disease and the necessity of prophetic, uh, of, of social distancing. Here, for example, prime of place, we have the story of, uh, of Omar at, at Sagh and the, the, the quotation by Amr ibn al-As of, you know, do not, if you hear that the plague gets broken out, do not enter, do not leave. And we also have the uh, prophet statements regarding leprosy. These come up a great deal. Um, so it's strikingly enough, the, 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 so... The, for example, the prominence that the plague treatise of Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani had had and his, his arguing that the, the, the plague is a, um, a martyrdom for Muslims, it's, it's perhaps not surprising that it doesn't come up here because Ibn Hajar was talking specifically about plague as a specific disease and not about epidemic. He had, didn't have any problem with um, uh, contagious disease in general. 
but in, at times, uh, in one fatwa from um, a group of scholars from South Africa, I did see that they took up the tradition specifically in which the Prophet had, had denied um, contagion. And they give you the historical um, uh, explanation that I provided you with, with earlier regarding this referring to pre-Islamic beliefs and not to the transmission of diseases. So one thing that I see... And I'll end with, with this, basically, and I'm happy to take more questions in Q&A about how we look back to this long and this rich tradition which brought together um, medicine and theology and, and, and morality and ethics and Sufism and, and um, theological concerns, is that the tradition remains remarkably um, up to the task, shall we say, of interpreting um, empirical realities through this, uh, these various ethical um, injunctions that, the, that it, is, it has remained uh, um, focused on or that run throughout all of these responses that I've given you today, right? And I'll, I'll finish just with, which is more of a shout out to the Library of Arabic Literature, which Nalita mentioned briefly at the beginning. When I was, this is, so this is a text here from the 17th uh, century. This is Al-Yusi, the same Moroccan scholar I was talking with previously talking about previously, um, on plague. And you'll see here that he, again, is explaining this issue through the eyes of someone who can wonder how they can rely upon God fully and sincerely, while at the same time taking measures to protect themselves. And he rounds this up at the very end by saying, what I'm telling you here that when the prophet said this whole no contagion business had to do with the pre-Islamic Arabs and their belief in things besides God causing things. But when you actually take action to protect yourself, what you're demonstrating here is adjoining your belief in God's oneness with a belief in God's wisdom and the way that he has ordered the world. And this is bringing together a synthesis of the reality of the truth with the revealed law. And so I think I was just going to end with, with this example and a call for the fact that too many of our sources regarding Muslim religious responses, responses that we now understand not just as religious, but also as medical, as ethical, et cetera, still remain in manuscript and that this intellectual history actually um, remains to be written. And so I, I will we'll end with that and I'm happy to, uh, to take questions. Thank you very, very much, uh, Justin, for this very timely, topical, and extremely informative talk. Um, now, just very briefly, uh, before we, I start to kind of convey to you the questions that are coming up onto my screen, I'm wondering, I like very much the idea of your emphasis on historical humanism and the ways in which we need to read, plague, disease, and so forth, and uh, the actors in their own historical context. Uh, and this is extremely important because we can retrieve agency rather than imposing present-day concepts on disease, uh, quarantine, or, or whatever it is. I'm wondering, in the light of this, the importance of this historical humanism, um, can you perhaps offer us your own reflection on 
how your work uh, on this particular topic in the past, and you know, you, you've obviously done a lot of work because you have a book published, and as I understand, you've been picking it up again, has helped you to deal or to explain or to come to terms with COVID that, that we've all, all have experienced. In other words, have you got any takeaway from your work in terms of the today's experience of COVID? Well, I suppose that it is of some small solace that other people have been down this track before us and have struggled with these same issues and that the, the feelings of uncertainty, of, of fear and stress that we have as we, we try to go about our lives in a time of epidemic disease and we have friends and family who are, are suffering because of it, this is not new. Um, in that, I take solace and uh, in, in that there's a, something of the human spirit there. Um, so that even if I, for example, don't share the theological views of an Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, for example, who lost three of his daughters, um, that I, I feel a strong degree of empathy and sympathy for him and, uh, and also understand and appreciate his own attempts to come to terms, not only with the reality of the plague, but with his own, his own loss. Um, I don't know. To be honest, though, at the end of the day, I'd like to be able to say that I read these old texts and I get some, something that gives me a greater sense of security and, and peace as I go about with my life in a time of COVID. But I'm still worried that my kids are going to get sick in school. Um, that doesn't change. I mean, some of the realities cannot be transcended simply by sitting down with manuscripts, um, much as though I would wish differently. Perfectly understandable, but it's very important that people like yourself continue to do this type of work and study this uh, uh, disease uh, and, and the ways in which it's been lived in the past. I have here on screen a, a number of questions. Uh, let me start uh, uh, with... Uh, uh, one uh, which focuses on uh, the Gulf, on the Gulf region. Um, uh, the question is, have you looked into the issue of disease and contagions in the Gulf states, particularly during the 19th and 20th century? Um, some remote Abu Dhabi coastal islands might have been used as quarantine locations for sick pearl divers and so forth. And there are records in the British archives of how tough life was in the Gulf with different diseases affecting the population right. in this. And this is from Dr. Mark Beach of the Department of Culture mm -hmm. and Tourism. Well, Mark, I, th I thank you for the question. Um, I think that's a great question. I have not. Uh, I have to say that my own focus on this issue has largely been confined to, to North Africa, to Al-Andalus, and now a little bit with Al-Bidlisi to the Noshalkani, uh, to other parts of the Arabian Peninsula and, and uh, the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, I think there, there would be a wonderful, that would be a wonderful project um, to see, uh, especially since you have those, those records in the British archives would be, there, there's all sorts of interesting administrative questions um, about how it's regulated. There's questions of colonial, projection of colonial control. This is where I wish that in some way I could just bring uh, Chris Lowe in here on this conversation, simply because his own work and, and looking at, at the, the British archives and also Ottoman records for uh, this time period, I doubtlessly have a lot more to say on this issue than, than, than mine. Thank you very much. Uh, um, we have, um, <coughs> excuse me, another question here. If plague is considered by some as a means of punishment for those who, stay, who stray away from the teachings of Islam, how is this belief consistent with the belief of death because of the plague being 
a mart a form of martyrdom. Right. So if you're going to go the route of Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani and say that the plague is a martyrdom, then actually we have kind of an explosion of martyrdom categories in the early Islamic period. So it starts off that martyrdom becomes something that's possible for you if you die in jihad. And then if you die and die in sea, if your house falls upon you, all sorts of things later become ways in which one can achieve martyrdom. But Ibn Hajar is ready for this question. And his point is here, there's some fine print to this. It's not just dying of the plague that makes you a martyr. Anybody can die. Dying is not hard in that sense. What is difficult is dying with the correct intention and the correct focus. And so that is how you can have something uh, such as the plague, which can be sent as a punishment for some and as a mercy for others. It's a punishment for some because they don't believe it. They don't create faith properly. And we can assume that that means that after they die, they're not going to heaven. And it's a mercy uh, for um, those who do believe because they will achieve martyrdom and go to heaven. So it's all about intentionality. Right? It all comes back to intentionality. And, and that's, of course, it's difficult to maintain one's proper tawakkul, reliance upon God, when you're faced with epidemic disease. But that's precisely what Ibn Hajar is urging his audience uh, towards. Thank you. We've got another question, another brief question here from an anonymous uh, attendee. Can you kindly give me the name of the scholar theory that states that we should comfort the sick and not abandon them? Right. Okay. This, this comes up throughout. I mean, it, it, you can go back. I would start here with the Ihya and Ghazali and the fact that all Muslims are considered in one body and that you should go forward with that. But the tendency comes up again and again. So I talked about Ibn Lub. He was a 14th century uh, jurist um, from Granada, and I, Ibn Ajiba, an a, a 18th, 19th century Moroccan um, scholar. I notice in, in, the, in, the, in the margins, and I, Elita, I don't want to take away your, your ability to, to, to read these out, but I'm just scrolling down through the questions myself, and I, and I feel remiss because uh, Frédéric Lagrange has, has correctly pointed out that I missed a whole, a whole different aspect to this discussion. So I'll just grab that question for a moment. Um, this question is, what about sources that are not fit? I've usually, I've talked about a lot of, of legal studies here, and there are other, um, this comes up in more of the historical sources. I cited in my talk, I actually had a brief slide with Ibn Kathir's description in uh, Damascus in the 14th century of, of how people behaved at that time. There is also a magical aspect to this, or I, I'm not sure magical is the right term here. I would use more occult. That is to say that there also are many beliefs that you can have spells, um, the names of God written in a certain fashion that can protect you from the plague, or if you say them in a certain order and so forth. And, and that, that tradition of the invocation of occult powers in order to protect you from the plague, naturally only occult powers that are properly understood as being sanctified and coming from the prophet or God himself, those are very popular throughout the Muslim world in terms of wearing amulets, um, and, and, and so forth. And shared within other Abrahamic faiths, I should say, within both Christian and, and Jewish sources. So, yes, uh, there is here a, a, a question by Frederick Lagrange, which uh, is primarily related to the fact that um, you're mentioning primarily fake sources in your, uh, um, in your talk. Uh, what about historiography? historians what what kind of take do they <clears throat> well if you go back this is where michael dole's book uh sorry if if you go back to michael dole's book you'll get in a, in a beautiful analysis of chronicles that give for example descriptions of funerals that would take place uh in cairo 
uh, and in other other um, principally, actually, Dole's focus is largely on Cairo and Damascus. But these give us accounts of how these things were experienced um, and from the perspective of the community. Um, and they largely relate to the number of people who, who died. And that's where I got many of the, those kind of generalizations I made about for a collective prayer outside of cities and coming together. That's from the historiographic uh, or the historical sources in, in that sense. Um, yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, most, I tried to bring in some of the more other sources from um, more works of Sufism or uh, works of theology or literature as well. But, but uh, Frédéric is right that there's a lot there that I haven't touched on. Yes, and I guess, you know, all these elements of popular culture uh, in, in sort of community practice linked to disease and superstitions, as you were saying, they will really come out in these types of account, which I imagine change over time when we get to the 16th or 17th century. Um, we have uh, um, another question here. Um, how can it be true that submission to Allah could be the only way out while Allah in the Quran incites people to get more knowledgeable? So this is a false binary. That is to say one submits to God uh, internally, um, but this is exactly the kind of thing that Ayusi is talking about. So you submit to God because that's the basis of being, I mean, this is the submitting to God is essentially just an acknowledgement of the oneness of God. And as his, he is the creator of all of reality. After that, you get on with the business of actually educating yourself. Um, and, and part of that's your responsibility as, as a, as a human being. And those, we, albeit we should remember that these are all elitist discourses written by men. It's all a very patriarchal order where you have the men are producing the knowledge because they occupy the positions of religious authority within society. They feel responsible for the well-being of society, but they also see themselves as an elite that not everybody is part of, which is why in their interpretations of the religious sources that sometimes they make, make an argument for what the spiritual elite should do and what everybody else should do, right? So, but there is no opposition between submission and learning. One is turning yourself towards God with the proper intention, and the other one is the activity you do as a responsibility to yourself and God in terms of increasing your knowledge. After all, the Quran calls on, on the believers time and time again to pay attention, to remember, and to observe the world around them. Well, um, I have to read this one to you. This is not a question, but I really enjoyed this lecture. Can you do more lectures like this? Thank you. And I, yeah. I <laughs> encourage you to do that. Thank you for this message. Um, another question. Um, apart from fiqh, hadith, and Sufism, how did the, Mus the Muslim medical expert at that time have dealt with pandemics? Can, for instance, ancient medical research and practices, including that of ancient civilizations like Egypt, be valuable in helping today's medical expert in finding a cure? So we, we get the information. The, the, I've, I've tried to summarize briefly I mean, because for this subject of this lecture, it's pretty straightforward. According to uh, the medical tradition, the humoral medical tradition, but also within a lot of the prophetic medicine tradition as well. Um, and these genres cross intercross with each other or overlap. 
um, diseases were simply were contagious. And the way in which one met the, uh, not all diseases are contagious, a certain number, but I'm, I'm talking about plague here for the most part. The remedies are found with one's diet and one's environment. So one is given a whole series of different ways in order to alter one's diet, in order to improve it, in order to improve one's own internal humoral composition, and to therefore, one assumes, um, find uh, strength in the body's constitution and ability to withstand the plague. Um, there was a lot of belief in that, and people said that that, that was effective, along with also these other more occult um, measures that one could take. I don't think, I mean, I'm not sure what we're talking about finding a cure for. We now have a, a cure more or less for bubonic plague. Um, but in terms of antibiotics, if you can get to a hospital and get treated quickly enough, um, I'm not sure that this, that the, re I don't think that a lot of the research, while we can learn about substances in terms of materia medica, different types of, of, of plants, and uh, in some cases, even stones and so forth that were used as medicines in the pre-modern period. Um, and in some rare cases, I think these have been found, or in general, they've been found to have medicinal purposes in that that has actually then been used by chemical companies and, and look in pursuing research along those lines. I'm not personally linked up with such endeavors. So I'm not the person to ask about where, if that would be a place to go to find a cure for any contemporary disease. And on COVID, we're on a tight timeline, so I don't think it's going to happen. Um, there is a very interesting question here on uh, whether you could say something about visual and material evidence for plague. Um, I'm sure medical manuscripts contain some visual evidence, but wondering what there might be out there, perhaps in the form of medical instruments or other objects. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, that is a great question. And I feel put on the spot again, uh, because of course I don't actually have any visual evidence to give you, which I realize is, is, is a, a terrible failing on my part. Uh, Stephanie Mulder is a, a prominent art historian of the Islamic period, and she is right to call me on this, but I simply don't have anything to give you. Um, I'm not sure what medical instruments we would actually be using in the case of plague precisely in the Muslim world. Um, and not, nothing, nothing specific comes to mind. So I, I apologize on that. I'll look into that. Um, could you please comment a bit more on the response to plague or epidemic coming from, from Sufi system, systems of thought? Uh, deriving from my experience of South Asian Sufism, is there a sense of the hospice uh, Hanka as a sanctuary of refuge and care? I was also fascinated by the theory of the genes being responsible for transmission. So the, there's a great deal of writing by Sufis on, on the plague. And I've tried to summarize some of that here. I mean, my uh, Al-Hassan Al-Yusti, this Moroccan scholar, Ibn Ajiba, who I refer to Al-Ghazali, um, all of whom were deeply familiar with Sufism. Um, 
Al-Bitlisi in his contemplation of the Barzakh and looking at that. So there's, there's these different forms of interaction, largely which turn around these questions, a couple of series of questions. One, uh, tawakkul or reliance upon God and what the boundaries of that are and how one, what one's personal uh, responsibility to one's own safety should be or to what ex where one sees oneself in one's ability to rely fully upon God. So some Sufis would see themselves to be so, at least this is the, what we are given in the literary accounts of their lives. It's hard to know if this is actually what, what they did, but we are given it, given it in, in, in narratives, would go out and put themselves in knowingly in danger in proximity to taking care of the sick with the possibility of, of getting sick themselves. I am not aware, um, uh, and of course, others would not. Not all Sufis would do that. Abidlisi came up with this entire said we have to run away from the plague. But I'm actually I'm more intrigued by your question about the Khanqas being used as a hospice uh, or the Zawi as it would be in North Africa. I'm not familiar of, of um, in Sufi institutions being signaled out as a place where people would be brought uh, to be taken care of. Um, I'd like that to be, be, be the case. I'd like to have evidence on that. that. That's suggestive, but I don't have any. I mean, this, this mention, uh, if I may interject on this, uh, of South Asia made me actually think about um, whether you can locate within the Christian Mediterranean tradition any particular type of information about how Muslims dealt with disease, plague, institutionally or otherwise. Is there any interest there, any mention? Yes, I mean, it, it comes up uh, extensively after the 16th century, um, because one of the things that happens in Europe after the Protestant Reformation is that how one responds to the disease then gets... Um, First of all, it gets broken down and uh, people start using the Middle East as a way to refer to each other and inter polemics between Protestants and Catholics. But subsequently also, there are many people who travel to the Middle East and then make observations about their, about the Ottomans. This chiefly is true with the Ottomans. And the, and it, it's almost always done. And this is something that the Nuket Varlik is, is written about, but it's almost always done in a way that runs down Muslims as fatalistic. So it's, it's a way of criticizing. Um, Muslim responses to epidemic disease, and it's hard not to see it outside of the political context in which it takes place. Uh, to be sure, there would have been some Muslims who would have responded um, in a uh, in a what might be construed as a, as a fatalistic um, fashion, but that was certainly not true of all of them. And one of my favorite anecdotes, which I, I use in one of my articles, is of a in an Arabic uh, Muslim source in which Christians are described as being incredibly fatalistic. And because they are so reliant upon God, Muslims are tell that he uses it to urge his fellow Muslims to raise to that standard of be relying upon God and to approach plague-struck areas with the same degree of fortitude that their Christians are. So this entire issue becomes of how one responds and how much faith in God one can demonstrate becomes a polemical device in literary narratives and has to be understood as such. It's not, it's outside of an anthropological journalistic description of what's happening. It gets fed into these broader polemical discourses, be they civilizational or theological. Thank you. Um, Lina writes, uh, uh, I might be jumping into a conclusion here. 
But what do Mr. Stearns think of the contribution of Muslim scholars in this field specifically? Did they actually come up with efficient methods? That's a good question. I mean, this is where I'm going to have to reveal my, my hand as a historian. I don't really care if they came up with methods that have any benefit on people's health today, as we understand it, because I see us working within a different medical paradigm. I'm much more interested in understanding what they did for the people in their own time. And in that sense, they came up with remedies which met the social needs of their communities. Be these advice on, on um, running away from the plague and taking care of themselves, be this advice on taking care of the sick, be this advice on terms of how to change one's diet or one's way of life, or... Um, all of these are, are ways in which they, they met the needs of their, of their community. And I find those all efficient. Uh, this is where I'm, I'm kind of, um, I'm not so much interested in evaluating these circumstances and these responses according to contemporary biomedical understandings of disease, because I don't think that that does actual justice to their responses at the time. Thank you, Justin. Um, I see for the moment one last question here on screen from Adam. Could you please repeat the name of the author who wrote about the plague in Egypt and the name of the book? Right. Um, well, luckily, this, this whole talk should be recorded. That was somebody else's question and will be online. And so you can go th scroll through later if, if this is not clear. But the Stuart Borsch, is the name of the author who did the comparative study of, uh, of England and, and Egypt. And he's published much more on that recently. You'll find him online. Um, and, and Michael Doles was the one who wrote the, the Black Death in the Middle East, which was kind of the, the first kickoff volume, um, which really integrated, sort of started this as a field in contemporary scholarship. Um, thank you. Oh, yes. And then so Edna put in a review that I co-authored of Stuart uh, Borsch's book uh, way back in 2006. So yes, that's the, that's the book. Um, yeah, in fact, most, most of the, what everything I've said this evening is based on the various things that I've, I've published, um, uh, either in the book of mine or more recently uh, in the last couple of years. So that's also a place to find the, the sources. Well, I don't see any other question coming up on screen. Uh, well, I think we have uh, actually exhausted uh, uh, Justin with a variety of questions. And uh, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, uh, can I remind you, as Justin just mentioned now, that the talk is recorded and therefore you're more than welcome to uh, watch it again to get further information or further nuances. This was a very, very rich uh, uh, presentation. And uh, let me very warmly thank Justin for this fantastic expose. And uh, we hope to see him again. Uh, uh, and hopefully you'll get back to uh, the topic again. Thank you very much, Nalita, and thank you very much for this opportunity to the Institute and, and greetings to all my, my friends and colleagues in Abu Dhabi. I hope you're, you're all doing well. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.